Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I recently spoke with Yu Ro Zhong about her new book, Chinese Grammatology Script Revolution and Chinese Literary Modernity, 1916 to 1958. This came out in 2019 with Columbia University Press. And this is about China's script revolution, how, for a brief period of time, Chinese intellectuals, activists, artists, linguists tried to do away with Chinese characters in favor of coming up with and then implementing a Chinese alphabet. This book traces this script revolution's provenance, transmutations, and containment, looking at how this movement born out of phonocentricism, the idea that speech is superior to writing, and that proper superior scientific writing systems are ones that properly represent speech, ultimately, bizarrely, and somewhat counterintuitively, wound up endorsing the simplification of the very characters it initially set out to do away with. And exploring How and why this happened is what this book really does. And if you want to know the answer to this, keep on listening, because you'll hear you wrote Talk Me and You Through It. So if you are interested in 20th century Chinese history or literature, the development of national literatures during this period more widely, the history of modernity, global phonocentricism, or China's reform movements, then this is the book for you. And you should really read it, because certain sections of it in particular, a GR score, a full letter from a Swedish linguist, a complete translation of the pros and cons of the laborers being in France, an analysis of sections from UTUN novels. We touch on these things in the podcast that follows, but you really need the book in order to appreciate and read and look at them for yourself. So with this, I hope you seek it out, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with Yuro Zhong to talk about her new book, 
Chinese Grammatology, Script Revolution and Chinese Literary Modernity, 1916 to 1958. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Euro, and thank you for taking the time to navigate life, summer plans, the ongoing global pandemic, to talk with me about your book. Thank you very much, Sarah, for having me. No problem. So your book, uh, Chinese Grammatology, is at its most fundamental level a book about the script revolution in China, how for most of the first half of the 20th century, reformers waged war on the Chinese script and tried to eliminate it and implement a Chinese alphabet instead. And you sort of, you mention this in the acknowledgments of your book that you first encountered the script revolution while doing your undergraduate thesis. So could you talk a little bit about this? How did you come to the topic of this book, The Script Revolution, in the first place? Right. Thank you for picking up on that. Um, Yeah, I've been obsessing uh, about this topic ever since as an undergrad. I really haven't come very far, have I? Um, So I became interested while doing my undergraduate thesis in the question of baihua, a literal translation of Baihua would be plain speech, although some people would translate it as the vernacular. Um, to be completely honest, being interested in Baihua is really nothing new um, because there is scholarly consensus that Baihua is the building block of modern Chinese language and literature. And it is also uh, the biggest contribution of the new culture and May 4th movements. So nothing innovative there. But uh, to my credit, I wasn't interested in Baihua because it's important. It's obvious and indisputable that it is important. But I became interested because I had problem with it. Uh, I had problem with the discourse of Baihua, to be specific. So I guess I can sum up my problem as two, well, twofold, really. The first one is um, the dichotomy that Baihua, the Baihua discourse sets up between the new Baihua, the new, the 20th century, um, new culture and May 4th Baihua. So this, this is a new thing and it is either it or everything else against it. Um, so this everything else, that whole basket included, uh, of course, the classical and literary language, Wen Yan, and any number of old Baihua, such as uh, the Tang Dynasty Baihua poetry, uh, Song Dynasty Huaben uh, spoken stories, and then Mingqing Baihua fiction, of course. Uh, the idea is really radical and sweeping, um, is that new Baihua, May 4th and new culture, new Baihua, because of its promise to pure orality, is easier to learn, easier to read, uh, more alive and democratic and so it is capable of reviving a voiceless and lifeless Chinese writing. And everything else that came before it, before the new Baihua, is considered dead and belong to the dustbin of history. Um, and, uh, to be clear, these extremely harsh words attacking uh, what stood opposite new Baihua, they're not mine. Um, I am quoting preeminent Chinese writers such as Lu Xun, Hu Shi, Chen Duxiu, the list can go on and on. Um, the dichotomy is is basically, as we can see, a sweeping endorsement of the power of the vernacular, um, its power in creating a live national language and literature. And that discourse, again, is nothing new uh, from Italian to Turkish to Japanese. Basically, every national 
um, modern national literature relied on some version of the um, vernacular discourse. Um, so if that kind of dichotomy discourse is so sweeping, then probably it wouldn't uh, hold. And that is the case. What I did for my undergraduate thesis is that, that I took um, two well-known texts, uh, two translations of two well-known texts. texts. Uh, one is, uh, what is the, the first one? Right, uh, Zhao Yanren's translation of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, it is supposedly a new Baihua translation, a celebrated one at that um, then the other one is a Wen Yan translation done by Ling Shu of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Again, it is also a celebrated translation. Uh, what surprised me, uh, I was doing a ve- ve- fairly rudimentary comparative reading of the two um, at the level of language specific. What came as a surprise is not so much that the dichotomy, the promised superiority of New Baihua didn't really deliver, that it is not, in fact, easier to read. Um, it is not more accessible to a modern reader like myself. Um, maybe part of the credit should go to Ling Shu as a masterful translator, really, um, or his help, um, who helped him navigate the world of foreign languages of which Ling Shu did not know a word of. Um, <laughs> so uh, the real surprise was not so much that the dichotomy wasn't uh, what it was, but that I couldn't really uh, be certain at all times that the new Baihua uh, translation was more oral, more colloquial than the supposedly classical literary language. So at times, the classical language sounded more colloquial to my um, sensibility at that time. Um, so as you can see, even the Baihua, the very basic self-proclamation of vernacular, was in jeopardy, was not so secured. Um, and I've always had this problem with the term vernacular itself because it signals definitional trouble. Um, it denotes two meanings at the same time. Uh, for one, it is common speech that is susceptible to a certain level of standardization. For another, it is vulgar speech, which by definition resists standardization. So there you go. Um, the promise to channel pure, unadulterated um, orality is by definition near impossible. Um, then I've only accounted for you the first problem that I had with Baihua. I really had a lot of problem with it, I guess. The second problem uh, that I had with Baihua was the, dis- the discourse is that um, the new Baihua was not what it claimed to be. Um, a good example would be Hu Shi, one of the fathers of Baihua uh, literature. Uh, he had produced a series of writings on Baihua. Uh, from his uh, some modest proposals for the reform of literature to his later writings on uh, the Chinese Renaissance, what these writings made abundantly clear was his uh, strong faith, almost religious faith, in New Baihua and its promise of purality. Um, what they also made clear, perhaps in a less obvious but endlessly um, tiltulating way for me is that the nature of New Baihua is really not purality, but a colloquialized written language, Yi Ti Wen, um, that utilized elements of old Baihua. 
Um, so the discrepancy between Hu's recommendation of plurality and his actual practice of, you know, writing literary language from Mingqing um, fictional um, novels that he admitted himself doing, um, that discrepancy was just too obvious, and it raised a simple question of why? Why did new cultural elites have to hold on to a name that promised plurality, but at the same time they know all too well that that promise was not to be delivered, and they were already writing a colloquialized written language? And um, was Baihua a bad faith enterprise to begin with? And uh, where did such fascination with phonocentrism such insistence on privileging speech over writing, where did that really come from? Um, so, and incidentally, I'll, I'll try to wrap up this origin story. This is revisionist history, a person, an author really loves, right? Um, I, I, I also discovered around the same time that Zhao was, or around the same time that Zhao was translating Alice in Wonderland, he was really young, newly appointed to Tsinghua, um, also busy getting married at that point. Um, he was also engaged in, um, actually, correction, he was a leader of the so-called Chinese Romanization movement that aimed to get rid of Chinese characters um, to implement a Chinese alphabet in its stead. And also he and Hu Shu were good friends and they agreed, uh, they, they, went, they went way back to their Cornell years. Um, they even wrote uh, an essay together as early as 1916 arguing for the elimination of the Chinese script, um, which that essay came um, came into the book as a cornerstone of um, the timeline of the entire project. So long story short, <laughs> everything started with the problematic Baihua, and it was simply shocking um, to an undergrad that both father of modern Chinese linguistics as and as well as the father, one of the fathers of Baihua um, literature, both of the fathers wanted to abolish characters. I just had to keep digging and find out why and how. Yeah, so that's the long origin story. Perfect. And you said, you know, you said that's your origin story, but you touched on so many things that come up in the book, right? National language, accessibility, the problem of how to make language accessible, colloquial language, standardization, orality, PT1. The Romanization movement, which we will get to very shortly, the new Baihua discourse, which comes up a little bit later. Uh, but so all of these things you just touched on um, really bring us beautifully into the book because these are all sort of core key parts of the book, right? Um, this book explores, you know, through all of these things, um, as you say in the book, Chinese grammatological, literary, and cultural modernity, and how script, literature, writing, politics, and orality all intertwine. And they all intertwine along, um, as you say in the book, along three trajectories. And it's through these trajectories that you sort of build the book. They're kind of like the spine. So as a way of taking us into the book proper, um, you wrote, could you walk us through what the three trajectories are? And it's sort of a big thing, right? It's a big question because it's sort of asking you to set up the book, but what are sort of the three through, the three through lines that this book follows. Thank you. Um, great. Um, this will give me an opportunity to draw you a map of what I did, the mess that I created. Um, the, the three trajectories, simply put, 
Um, the first one is the script revolution itself. What happened there and how did it happen? The second one is the coming together of script and the literary revolutions, what I call double revolution. So basically, the second at the second tier is what about literature? How did script impact literature? And the third one is the uh, theoretical implication of the script revolution. These are the three trajectories, and they developed in response to three of my main questions, really. The first one is, so what's up with script revolution? Um, what happened and why did it happen that way? And uh, an extension of that um, question would be, because I, doing very preliminary research, already made it clear to me that the script revolution was not just a fringe phenomenon, Is not was not a crazy idea spun out of thin air by a genius figure like Zhao Yanren. It's not that case. It's a, a collective, concerted, and even bipartisan project. Um, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, and the Nationalist Party disagreed on so many things, but they agreed on the one thing that Chinese characters will have to go. So the the, the project was huge. Um, then an extension of that, my, my question at the level of the script revolution itself was, if it was really that big, then why was it not better remembered? And why did we not talk, do we not talk about the legacy of the script revolution more? Um, and just to give you another example, it's one of my favorite examples, really, to show you how big the movement was, there, is, there was this uh, public letter in uh, 1935 signed by 688 Chinese intellectuals, activists, artists. Um, that letter is entitled uh, Our Opinion on the Promotion of the New Script, Xinwenzi. Xinwenzi is the name of the Roman Latin script and orthography, really, produced by the Chinese Latinization movement, which I guess we will also get to in a bit. Um, so these these are not just any number and just any regular Joe. These are familiar um, luminaries such as Cai Yuanpei, Li Gongpu, Lu Xun, Mao Dun, Ba Jing, and even uh, Gu Meruo. And then um, you also have Jiang Qing, um, incidentally. So it, it would be an it would not be an exaggeration, let's just say, to um, to categorize the script revolution as a litmus test for progressivism. And if you you are a self-respecting intellectual at that time, chances are that you would be, you'd be signed on to either the Chinese Romanization movement or the Latinization movement. Um, whether or not you supported the script revolution becomes a symbol. Um, so this is the first trajectory of the script revolution itself. And the second question is a little bit impossible, but <laughs> necessary one is, how did it impact literature? Um, it took me a really long time to figure out um, how to reconcile the obviously self-contradictory project projects, really. Uh, one, trying to get rid of Chinese characters. The other one, producing a national literature using ostensibly characters. I mean, how do you write Chinese literature when Chinese writing was about to be thrown out of the window? Um, what was really mind-boggling to me was how those top-notch literary and intellectual minds, such as Lu Xun, uh, 
uh, did not see that these two projects, um, the script and literary revolutions, as mutually exclusive. Um, Lu Xun is a fun, um, interesting example. He became really obsessed with the Chinese Latinization movement toward the end of his life. He penned at least eight essays, if I'm counting correctly, um, in the last couple of years of his life. And he, he's Lu Xun. He came up with colorful um, <laughs> and you know poignant attack on the Chinese, old Chinese script, calling it a case of TB, terminal illness, and <laughs> calling people who wanted to hold on to those old characters as um, crazy and a lot losing their mind. That's the term that he used. Uh, yet he kept <laughs> writing, attacking the Chinese characters in characters. And I just couldn't really understood, understand why and how Lu Xun did that. But a mind, a, 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 another voice in my mind kept saying that it's Lu Xun, so there must be some rationale. And it probably made sense um, to be loyal to both projects of script and literary revolutions. And um, I was fortunate, though, um, it was a torturous process to come to terms with how that reconciliation was possible. And that brings me to um, the one key concept of phonocentric antinomies that um, denote both, both the negative and positive aspects of phonocentrism. I guess we can talk about that um, a little bit more later on. And that is key to how phonocentrism was mobilized and started transmutating. And if I'm allowed one more word on the um, the second trajectory on uh, literature and script revolution is that these transmutations uh, were as important, if not more, as the originary impulse of getting rid of Chinese characters. Um, yeah, so, and the third one is the big theory question that was also difficult to grapple with, but I guess we can talk about that um, when we come to it. Sure, and maybe, I love the way that you set that up, that the middle trajectory you described as being the really, really tough one, but the theory, also hard, but in some ways almost seemed less hard than the second <laughs> one, um, which I love because I know I would personally probably put the third one first, um, but anyway, thank you for, thank you for setting that up. Um, because we sort of come then to both sides of the bipartisan conflict. I love thinking of it that way. Right. Uh, because chapters one and two then set up both sides of this, this script revolution. They set up the two combatants of the revolution. Um, and as you say, you know, when you were describing all of the different figures who were involved and you, you, know, you hit on almost everyone. <laughs> Everyone seems to be involved. Um, as you said, you know, no self-respecting you know, progressive revolutionary would not be involved in this. I think that one of the great things about chapters one and two is by the time you finish them, you know, it seems um, almost very logical to the reader. Like, yes, of course, we're going to get rid of Chinese characters. This is obvious. This is clearly a bad system. So <laughs> with that, we come to the first side, right? The first the first wing of this conflict to get rid of Chinese characters um, in chapter one with the Chinese Romanization movement of the 1920s. And as you said, this is endorsed by the Kuomintang, the GMD, or the Nationalist Party. And they wanted to get rid of uh, Chinese script 
and bring in the National Language Romanization Script, or GR. Um, so their plan was to transcribe the new national pronunciation based on the Beijing dialect, and in 1928, the GMD officially recognized this as their, their script. And much of this chapter really works to unpack what was at stake in this script. Um, you know, not only how they were trying to appropriate the Roman Latic alphabet for Chinese writing, and this is where I think um, the whole, of course, it's natural, obviously we're going to want to do this, comes in, but how the GR was really trying to claim alphabetic universalism for the Chinese alphabet. So could you talk a little bit about this? How would you sort of describe GR? Is there anything I haven't quite captured? And where do we see the Chinese bid for alphabetic universalism in it? Right, thank you. Um, what you have said about GR is, is actually plenty. Um, um, I probably couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, the to to answer the question uh, in a in one sentence, what GR was really about and why the Romanization um, movement was so special is is maybe I can try at this. The the, the GR system was the the uh, beginning of alphabetizing Chinese. Is the first salvo of attacking the old script and converting to the phonocentric regime. But what is really interesting is that it was more than a story of orientalization or self-orientalization. Um, it's more than a colonial story. Um, it tried to uh, stake the Chinese bid in this game of phonocentrism, of taking writing um, as a technology and finding the most uh, scientific, hence best technology. And the Chinese uh, intellectuals, Zhao Renan specifically, was of the mind that the Chinese uh, new alphabet could just do that. And in, in that sense, I realize the sentence is really long, um, in, in that sense, uh, the alphabetic universalism was first upheld and then was challenged, then was canceled out by the Chinese bit yet phonocentrism uh, was not only alive and well, but reinforced. Uh, so that would be the, uh, the conclusion and why I think the Chinese Romanization movement was really special. But to get to there, maybe I can elaborate a little bit more on uh, GR. Um, so GR is short for um, literal translation would be National Language Romanization Script. Uh, it's the crown jewel of the Chinese Romanization movement and brainchild of uh, a, a coterie of Romanization revolutionaries. Um, GR was endorsed by the nationalist government in 1928 and was named as the second form of the national alphabet. And our Zhao Wenren was so excited about uh, at the prospect of GR not only being recognized officially, but also at its prospect of becoming not second, but first, um, one and only Chinese alphabet. Uh, there was this uh, diary entry that I really love. Um, he wrote in the GR system itself, saying that GR was uh, officially announced on September 26th. Hooray, in English, three exclamation mark. Um, that's the level of excitement, euphoria, really. Um, thinking that Chinese, the Chinese alphabet was re re within reach. 
uh, a common understanding of GR is that it's sophisticated, but it's too difficult and impractical uh, to use. Lucian called it a plaything of a scholar's um, study. Of course, Zhao Yanren would not uh, like that. He and his friends, uh, Hu Shi was one of them, and also Lin Yutang, I remember digging in the archive and uh, coming across uh, GR letters that they wrote to each other. They would quiz each other and asking, uh, how did I do? Am I um, passing the GR <laughs> test? Um, so these are all great minds and Lin Yutang and Zhao Yiren are trained linguists and even them will have to think about whether they got the romanization system correct. That goes to show that GR was not that simple, right? So uh, there are rules to abide by. One biggest feature uh, that stood out, which became um, really a point of contention in the competition uh, for the Chinese alphabet was its tonal representation, the tone in letter system, uh, meaning that Zhao uh, was of the mind that there should be no diacritics in the romanization system, keep it neat. Um, and to mark tonal values, we should use different spellings. Um, uh, uh, not to bore your um, listeners with the detail, but you can um, easily run through these um, rules. One extremely oversimplification that I can tell you about, about the tonal representation is that the first tone, we know that Mandarin, there are four tones. The first tone would be a basic form, say ma, 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 ma. Ma would be M-A. Ma, second tone, would be uh, M-A-R, adding an R to the basic form. And the third one, ma, would have you double doubling um, the vowel, M-A-A, and then ma. You will have to figure out in the context what kind of consonant to add ending to the basic tone. Uh, basic, yeah, uh, the form, the basic form. So that is just the beginning of of um, the GR rules. I can go on, and uh, we would be here all day, all night. But the real stake, so <laughs> GR is difficult, but the real stake is not that it is official. It was official, theretofore the highest um, recognition any Romanizes, Romanization system had received from uh, the nationalist government, or any government for that matter. Um, the real stake was... Not that, nor was it its difficulty or sophistication, but the Chinese bid for alphabetic universalism, something that you already teased out. Um, the bid, that bid is twofold. One is that it wanted to substitute Chinese characters with the Roman Latin alphabet. And the second is uh, to stake a competing claim of alphabetic universalism by making a new Chinese alphabet or orthography, really, as the most scientific phoneticization scheme that can transcribe all languages. The comparison would be any number of languages. Um, English and French are two that Zhao um, invoked. Um, so there's this one letter uh, I came across in the archive uh, sent from the Swedish sinologist Bernhard Kargren to Zhao on the question of basically what language and script modern China should adopt. Big topic, but a very short letter. If your readers are interested, listeners are interested, I highly recommend that letter. Um, it's, uh, 
the, the, what the letter revealed was that within the international coalition against Chinese characters, if you will, there was also competition for the title of the Chinese alphabet. Um, so the difference between Cogren and Zhao was both at the same time phonemic and phonetic. They wanted their writing system, phoneticization system, to be phonetic and be adopted, to be used for official use. What motivated GR and, by extension, um, the whole Romanization movement was phonocentrism as an abstract principle. They want practical use, but they also want to win the game of uh, finding the best writing technology to write sound, write speech sound. Um, so to, to that end, to find the best technology to write sound, any number of alphabet uh, can participate in the competition, not just the Roman Latin alphabet. So um, Water owns hubris um, <laughs> argument that there is only one alphabet should not be the final say in this competition. And if we're really serious about the game of phonocentrism, finding the best technology for it, then uh, the medium for sound transcription does not even have to be an alphabet. And that is where the Bell Labs um, speech spect spectrograph came in, in that chapter as well. So um, to sum up, I know I've been going on for a while. The, the biggest takeaway of GR, as you already said, I said I probably couldn't have said it better than you already <laughs> did. Um, the, the biggest takeaway is that the first move toward alphabetizing Chinese is that the very beginning of modern Chinese script revolution already saw both the beginning and end of alphabetic universalism. And what is really interesting is that although alphabetic universalism was called into question and cancelled out, uh, phonocentrism was uh, alive and very well. Um, so it is reasonable to not take the Roman Latin alphabet as the only agent um, to carry out the bid of phonocentrism and to imagine other possibility of privileging speech overwriting is entirely a viable path. So that's why we have all those transmutations of phonocentrism. That's how the Chinese script revolution kept on evolving. Absolutely. Thank you so much for hitting on all the different things that are going on in this chapter, uh, because there is a lot going on um, in it. As And then, you know, you teased out some of the, it's one of the difficult things about talking, <laughs> talking orally about how speech is transcribed in a new form of alpha. There's something weird going on there, but there's lots of examples in this chapter of what GR actually looks like. And they are, they are fascinating to read. Um, you you know you touched on a couple, um, so <laughs> listeners were wondering what does that look like. Um, definitely seek out this chapter in particular. But with this, we move to chapter two, and we move to I think a group of people who would definitely find GR too difficult, <laughs> too much of a plaything. Um, I don't know about too scientific, but definitely too difficult, too fussy, too. Had to something, um, and I'm sort of gesturing, flailing here at GR's rival, which chapter two takes us into. So in chapter two, you look at the Chinese Latinization movement. And this movement presents itself as being quite different to GR. 
even though they're, you know, they're seeking also to eliminate characters. Um, so the Chinese Latinization movement, as this chapter sort of looks at, um, originated in the Soviet Union in the late 1920s, and it was endorsed by the other side, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. And you explore in this chapter how um, the Chinese Latinization movement really positions itself as being an opponent of GMD-backed Romanization movement. So it has it had its own Latinization system, Xinwenzi, <laughs> was quickly banned by the nationalist government, and uh, rightly so, adopted as a legal script in CCP-controlled regions. And a lot of this chapter looks at the differences between the two. So, for example, um, Latinization, unlike Romanization, insisted on representing local speech, and Latinization was committed to proletarian culture, aiming to massify literature and art, to make literature and art accessible to all. So on the whole, then, Latinization you know, presents itself as a democratizing and revolutionizing sort of script, and it really positions itself against this elitist Romanization movement. So as with the previous chapter, there's a lot going on here. And again, if you want to see what it looks like, you kind of have to look at the chapter, but uh, is there anything that you want, you wrote, to sort of highlight about the differences between the Latinization movement and the Romanization movements in particular? I think it's really important to sort of take away about how these two are different. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. I'm going to try one sentence blurt out again. Um, <laughs> it's the, the biggest difference, the biggest, the highlight um, that I should emphasize is the double revolution, um, double revolutions really, um, of the script and literary revolution. That is something that the Chinese Latinization movement definitely pride itself um, with. Um, then you you summarized it beautifully about the uh, phonocentric antinomies. Basically, there is the epistemological violence of uh, phonocentrism, wanting to get rid of Chinese characters, but because of the positive aspect of phonocentrism, promising the marginalized, the repressed, an opportunity to read and write, so to uh, learn and then to express on their own terms. Um, very much fall in line with the bigger 20th century um, democratic and revolutionary projects. And that is the willing price that these Chinese intellectuals and international um, sympathizers agreed upon, that this this bigger project of democracy and um, making people who they really are, allowing them live and let live, basically, that project is so much more valuable than the old Chinese characters. Again, I'm thinking of Lu Xun's essay, one of his essays promoting the Chinese Latinization, uh, saying that, sure, the Chinese characters uh, are treasure passed down from our ancestors, but we are also treasure passed down from our ancestors. And to save us or save those dead characters 
if you have not lost your mind, you should be able to answer that question immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the biggest difference. And um, as Sarah, you have already um, helped me summarize the basic differences between the Romanization and Latinization. Uh, Romanization came first. I know this probably sounds very confusing to people. Romanization and Latinization are the same thing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> trust us that it's not. Um, aside from the name, uh, that sort of denote the same project of alphabetizing Chinese. They really disagreed on almost everything. Uh, the political allegiance is one. Um, as you were saying, uh, the Latinization, because it came uh, later in the uh, 30s, as a dissident movement uh, that originated in the Soviet Union, supported by the CCP. Of course, the nationalists were not very happy with it, and they banned it uh, between 1936 and 38. Uh, the ban only lifted uh, once the uh, Second United Front was formed during uh, the Second Sino-Japanese War. Uh, that political difference aside, uh, there are techni technical um, disagreement as well. On the level of technicality, the Latinization disagreed that uh, disagreed with uh, the toning letter um, system. Many people probably would. Cogren didn't like it either. Um, for the Latinization people, they thought that why bother with tonal representation? Because there are just too many tones, and tones are at best approximation of real speech. You're not going to get it right anyways. There are nine tones in Cantonese, six to seven tones in Wu dialect, and then maybe even 10 tones in some uh, Guangxi dialects. It's just impossible to get all of them right. Then let's just get rid of tonal representation and allow the tone to come out in the context. This is their radical approach. They are not for uh, the accuracy <laughs> of uh, tonal representation or uh, speech transcription, for that matter. And in relation to that is Latinization's disagreement with Romanization on the question of fang yan. Uh, I'm going to translate it as dialect. Of course, linguists argue whether fang yan should be languages or dialects, topolects. But here, um, I would follow these historical actors, their own terminology. They, so the Latinization people thought we should allow all dialects, all fangyan, all topolects to have their own uh, Latinized scripts so that you would have competing Cantonese new script, Shanghainese, uh, Fujianese, the list goes on and on. Um, but the Romanization people, because of their affiliation or uh, official status uh, now approved by the nationalist government, they could only, not only that that is, that is wrong, they had no, not a lot of leeway in the language that they wanted to represent. They switched from the old national language that was more susceptible to dialectal difference to the um, new uh, national language approved in uh, around 1923-24 that is basically present-day Mandarin that is heavily northern uh, Beijing dialect-based. Um, I, I say that they don't have a lot of leave, leeway because a lot of the Romanization people struggled as well. They think that we want to compete with the, the Latinization people. We can also um, transcribe Fang Yan. Our system is far more potent than their 
rudimentary one. Um, but just because romanization wound up as part of the nationalist national project of language and writing reform, um, it just could not claim the the kind of linguistic and grammatological egalitarianism that Latinization could. Um, so the biggest difference, um, and this is sort of the the crux to the difficult question that I grappled with um, with the second trajectory, um, is the convergence between the third literary revolution and the script revolution itself. As you already said, um, it is this convergence is basically the massification of literature and art. Um, and I, I appreciate you saying that um, my treatment of the third trajectory theory is, uh, you know, less, um, <laughs> what's the word, diffident than my, uh, my fear of the second trajectory. Again, this is what the script revolutionaries say, that uh, theory is easy, but you have to show me the goods the, the goods meaning the alphabetic writing, how are you really going to make it happen? And that is the biggest beef that I had to work with in this project of thinking through how was the script revolution really meaningful for literary writing? And um, allow me to introduce the two uh, examples and then I promise I'll stop. Um, <laughs> one is Chicho Bai and then the other is Xu Dishan. Both people are brilliant writers, and they really worked the mechanism of phonocentric antinomies um, to link the two movements of um, script and literary revolutions together. And both of them believed in the positive side of phonocentrism. They really wanted to give voice and give writing to everyone. And but that is not just it. Um, it would, if that is the case, then it would just be mass writing, everybody write. Uh, but uh, what is really rich and beautiful about the massification of literature and art uh, thought through in uh, under the principle, guiding principle of phonocentric realism, if you will, is that it has limits. So Xu Dijian in particular produced this fascinating novella called Yuguan. And if people don't read my chapter, it, it's okay. Please read Xu Dishan's Yuguan. It's a really wonderful read. Uh, that, that particular novella is uh, referential to and reflexive of, of the Latinization movement and is in allegiance to the positive side of homocentrism. It wanted to empower a subaltern woman. It tells the story of a subaltern woman, but um, without giving too much of it away, um, no spoiler alert here, but... Um, it basically tells the story of a Bible woman, a subaltern woman. It features Minani's alphabetic Bible, but it contains no conversation, no voice of the woman. Yet, nominally, it wanted to give voice to the woman. So there you go. The, the contradiction, uh, the intrigue is already there. Despite whatever goodwill these writers, these script revolutionaries, literary revolutionaries have to want to empower the subaltern, the subject, the objects of their writing. Uh, they, they still have to reckon with the limit of the representative mechanism that they had to um, employ. 
Hence, um, in some cases, as in this particular um, novella, Judy Zhang had to silence the woman that she he wanted to empower in order for her to speak. And isn't that just beautiful? <laughs> a, a set of contradictory uh, contradictions to work through in order to get at what uh, these writers really wanted for modern Chinese writing. Yeah, so thank you for asking that. Of course, and there's so much, oh, there's so many ways of tying this to chapter three, because chapter three is, can subaltern workers write? And I mean, this chapter really, you said, you know, uh, show me the goods is sort of a recurring thing. It's, the theory is all fine, but how, what does this look like in practice? And in some ways, chapter three sort of gives us a little bit of a taste of that, at least, um, in terms of what does it look like to give writing to everyone? What does it look like um, to teach this form of writing to everyone? And what does it look like when... Uh, uh, the proletariat starts using this writing to write things that you yourself did not really want them to write without giving too much of this chapter away. But there's, there's all of this comes through in chapter three. Um, so this chapter, I'll just set up a little bit of the context here. This chapter um, looks at the first modern Chinese literacy program, which was designed for Chinese laborers participating in World War One. Um, and this is not a story that I knew a whole lot about, but you explain in this chapter how these workers working in Europe received their wages in a two-part structure. So part of their wage was given to them, and then the other half was given to their family back home in China, which meant that they had to communicate with their families to check that their families had received the wages, so they needed to be able to write. Um, and so this chapter really looks at the literacy program, which was brought in by the YMCA and one volunteer in particular, a Yale graduate, James Yen. So it's a fascinating historical context that you get into here. Um, but there is a connection here between the war, this really practical need for literacy, and the May 4th Baihua discourse, which is something that we've touched on a little bit. But could you sort of flesh out this connection here? Where, where does this, what James Yen is doing and these workers learning how to write, how does this tie in with the May 4th Baihua discourse? Right, thank you. Um, that's a pointed question. and I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, James Yen is really a big name. It's, he is the, one of the leading figures still to this day uh, when people talk about international mass education and rural reconstruction, James Yen's name come up and he is now experiencing some kind of a revival, wave of revival um, in a recent Chinese rural, uh, what's it called? Xiangsun Zhengxing, the rural um, revitalization um, project. So he, he, he's there. He's, he looms very large. Yet uh, for someone who had such an illustrious career, he said that he owed everything to his encounter with the Chinese laborers in World War I. Um, these laborers, um, the number uh, varies. Uh, some say it's 140,000, some say it's 200,000. Uh, Cai Yuanpei, when celebrating these workers, family said, Laogong Shen Shen, sacred laborers, he gave the number of 150,000. Um, so uh, one thing important to flag is that this encounter between James Yen and these workers, um, as we know, historically, this is 
this is before the, the, these workers participated in the war. So um, the war was one of the uh, reasons leading up to the outbreak of the May 4th movement. So um, James Yen's encounter with laborers definitely predated May 4th and new culture uh, rebranding of um, what Baihua literature was all about. So what James Yen actually did, um, the whole thing is fascinating. And if um, your listeners are intrigued about these uh, Chinese laborers, there are new research on them, and there is even a documentary, YouTubeable, uh, on these workers. I think it's just called Lao Wong Jun Tuan, something like that. It's very well done, um, and I highly recommend that. And again, if you don't read my chapter, um, <laughs> learn about these workers. Um, so coming back to the, the point of um, the, the question that you asked, how did the May 4th Baihua discourse relate to what James Yen was doing here? Um, what James Yen actually did was retrospective naming, as I uh, hopefully have made clear. What they did was definitely not new Baihua. Um, so what they did as they themselves were writing and self-reflectively writing about what they, what the language that, what language they used, they gave that they're writing different names such as Guanghua Mandarin, Putonghua Common Speech, and mind you, the uh, Putonghua is not uh, the same as the Mandarin that we have in mind today. Putonghua basically means a common hodgepodge of different speech. Um, and then they also called it Putong Guanhua. So it means that there are uh, not so common Mandarin, right? So it's basically what I'm trying to say in the chapter, showing the chapter is that what they practiced in writing was definitely not the kind of pure oral transcription of one's speech that uh, the May 4th and uh, New Culture Baihua discourse so very much embraced. Um, what they actually wrote was the uh, beauty one, a colloquialized written language. Um, so Yen's retrospective naming is a false categorization, promise of pure orality. Um, it is clearly an instantiation of the phonocentric desire that is so common among script revolutionaries, though Yen himself didn't really support, come out to support the script revolution. Um, he did not sign his name on the public letter <laughs> that gathered 688 signatures. Um, but but the only he, one missing. <laughs> I know. How dare he? No. Um, he, uh, he didn't uh, sign up to the um, script revolution because he was signed up to the, the old mass education movement. And as the next chapter, chapter four, would make clear, he could not because only the new mass education movement supported the Latinization script revolution, not the old one. And in that case, James Yan was playing by the book, really. Um, so what I wanted to say is that uh, Yan uh, rebranded colloquialized written language as pure reality as the new Baihua, um, that, is, um, that is telling in, in uh, showcasing the success of the new Baihua discourse. But at the same time, it shows you that this new Baihua discourse is, 
is a second and most enduring transmutation of the script revolution. That's my argument. I'm not saying that script revolution or uh, formocentrism as a principle was all there to it, to the Baha'i discourse, or that um, it's the only reason for its success um, because Baha'i is not to be so easily reduced to only new Baha'i. There is old Baha'i and um, other uh, literary resources that one cannot ignore. Uh, what I think needs to be emphasized, to be liquidated really, is that this uh, script revolution at this particular age, because of its limits, because of its inbuilt, built-in uh, mechanism of phonocentric antinomies, it had to evolve. And it found a, um, a, a partnership, in a way, in the Baihua discourse. And at this particular historical juncture, Baihua discourse is very long, of course, but at this moment, phonocentrism seemed really appealing to Baihua when it wanted to reinvent itself, at least to the minds of the fathers of Baihua. Um, so this convergence of the new Baihua and the script revolution worked towards uh, the success story of the new Baihua discourse, at the same time, ironically, preserving the old Chinese script while nominally um, holding on to the phonocentric aspirations. So um, that way, phonocentric aspirations and the practice of character literacy managed to coexist. Um, and if I may, I know this is another, another long-winded answer, but I just have to highlight um, the worker's writing, Fu Xingzan's writing. Um, as you said, it's one of the goods that this project of uh, the new Baihua discourse, at least false branding it as such, produced. Fu Xingzan is one of the workers. Um, I, to, to my limited knowledge, the piece that I included in the, um, in the chapter by Fu Xingzan was the only surviving uh, composition by a worker who went to um, Europe to, fought for the, to fight for the work and fight for the allies. Um, this particular essay, The Pros and Cons of the Chinese Laborers Being in France, was a commissioned essay uh, by James Yen. The designer was probably asking them to, uh, to reflect on uh, how they could better their behavior and not to lose face for Chinese while they were overseas. But what Fu ended up writing was really remarkable. Uh, uh, it's a critique, basically, of World War I. What he managed to convey was not so different from Liang Qichao's famous reflection on uh, World War I, uh, a discourse on maybe even on the decline of Western civilization, on the instrumental use of um, science and technology, and on the uh, unsubstantiated grandiose dream of both the celestial dynasty that is China, as well as the hubris and brute force that is the European Great War. Um, so to conclude, I guess I can just say that to repeat Tsai Pei's chant, sacred the laborers, um, these are the laborers who can write, though they're writing the actual um, nature of their writing as well as their critique might be appropriated by their intellectual counterpart to serve other projects for enlightenment project maybe, but 
the fact that they they wrote and they left behind their own writing is enough evidence that we should take um, take seriously the valuable lesson that um, everyone should be able to write. Yes, absolutely. And I think the chapter definitely does take does take the does take it extremely seriously, as it does Yen's silence over the critical dimensions of of the, the writings of his workers. So it's a very, very cool chapter. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, this chapter sort of sets up um, what the writing of workers looks like. And you mentioned, you know, in that you offer this sort of, you know, as a as a as an example of of their writing as compared to the that of their intellectual counterparts, intellectuals. And this sort of is the other side of the coin that we get into in chapter four, which looks at again war and literacy, but at a slightly later period in the late 1930s. And this one, you know, we've been, we've been talking about convergence and this chapter is another one where we see convergence. Um, so this chapter looks at how the script revolution changes and you see it move from one that is sort of nominally advocating Latinization into one that's really favoring character literacy in order to meet the needs of wartime, national salvation, and mass liberation. So you talk here about the reconciliation between Xinwenza and Yutiwen, or uh, colloquialized written language that you sort of touched on and has come up a few times already. Um, and the convergence of Latinization movement, national salvation, and the new mass education movement, just to touch on a couple of the things that are converging all at once in this chapter. Um, so there are, again, a lot of really interesting moments here. One of my favorites, actually, is where you talk about how um, Sinwenza is, is, you know, compared to um, a bayonet here during the war. It's described as the people's script. It's not difficult to read, write, or learn. It stabs at tonal distinctions, and it lances square characters. It teaches everyone to read. Um, so here we see UT Wen in particular. We see it again, it's come up before, but here it's really explored. And you talk a little bit here about two novels in particular that were written using E.T. Um, Wen. So I don't want to give chapter five the short, short end of the stick here. So with this, is there anything that you want to sort of highlight and tease out about E.T. Wen in particular before we move on to chapter five? Right. Um, thank you. I didn't expect to talk so much about Yuti Wen already, so I guess we can be a bit more succinct here. Um, Yuti Wen, uh, the counterpart to Yuti Wen would be Wen Ti Yu, uh, so a, liter a literary rendition of spoken language. So these two terms, as you can see, highlight that the colloquialization, the degrees of colloquialization and literariness is really a spectrum um, in comparison to the resolute promise of pure reality of Bai Hua, Yu Tiwen and Wen Tiyu um, are really more honest about the nature of um, <laughs> the Chinese modern Chinese writing. And Yu Tiwen is, in fact, the staple of modern Chinese writing. And you already said um, so, so thoroughly, um, beautifully, about how this, this chapter is another one about all these convergences. Um, one more thing I do want to highlight is that Yu Tiwen helps to bring out the third transmutation of the script revolution. It served as a, again, unexpected linchpin that connected 
these two revolutions of the script and literature and signaled um, that it is possible now for the script revolution, the Latinization specifically, to embrace openly, not conceptually com- in a conceptually convoluted way like Baihua. It can now openly um, embrace character illiteracy while holding on to phonocentric aspirations and uh, encourage, uh, in fact, mobilize wartime resistance and uh, encourage the militarization of children and then announcing the death of bourgeois intellectuals and then signal the proletarianization of Chinese literature and culture, which I should hasten to add that was not so much an insular um, incident. It had the global um, phenomenon to back it up. Um, So, yeah, so... Does that answer the Yutiwen question? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's funny how, you know, you mentioned that this is sort of taking us to the third transmutation. So it's in, we've sort of traveled through one and two, and now we're at the third. And this beautifully takes us um, into the final, the final chapter, chapter five. Um, And you've sort of set this up. And I feel like, you know, reading this book now and reading about the script revolution now, reading about it in a world where there are Chinese characters, <laughs> this is sort of an end that we knew was coming because chapter five brings us to the end of the script revolution and the decision to keep Chinese characters, thus you know, leading to the world in which we live. Um, and I love how this chapter opens because it opens with uh, Zhou Enlai's report in 1958 on the the current tasks of the script revolution, where he lays out what the tasks of script reform are, and they are simplifying characters, promoting Putonghua, and issuing and implementing a pinyin plan. So characters are just, they're there, they're they're built in. The plan is to simplify them, but definitely to keep them. So again, we come to the end of the script revolution. So there is a lot going on here. Um, And you touch on some of the critics of the pinyin plan, you chart the scale and intensity of socialist script reform, and you talk about the resolution of the Chinese script revolution as a whole. And you point out that the retention of Chinese characters constituted an anti-ethnocentric, anti-imperialist critique, as well as something we've kind of seen, you've hinted at all, all throughout, an implosion of photocentric ideology. So with a bang, it all implodes. <laughs> But with this, um, is there anything that you want to sort of tease out the importance of the end of the script revolution um, as we are here at the very end in chapter four? Thank you. That's an incredibly generous question. Um, I I appreciate you um, teasing out the the beginning as um, something, the beginning of the chapter as something interesting because this, to, to my mind, when I was, uh, converting this manuscript into a presentable book, one thing that I couldn't solve was how did it really end? Again, um, as historical insight, as you put it, we know that characters survived, but if it were true that 688 and more um, great minds of Chinese culture and um, art and politics wanted to get rid of Chinese characters and they cited international success stories specifically one uh, success story would be Turkish 
um, language script reform, they said, let's do it the Turkish way. Let's give it three months and get rid of everything and then convert to the Roman Latin alphabet. It is not impossible. And if my narrative was true to, in any sense, true to what actually went down, um, the level of resolution was uh, enough, was was there. And for the socialist leg of the script revolution, it's even more so. Then how did the Chinese characters survive is another puzzle um, that I couldn't wrap my mind around. Um, and I, um, part of the... Um, the ending that came to me, and I shouldn't say it, the script revolution has already ended, it is an ongoing process in the sense that we're still living the consequences, the legacy of the script revolution. As you said, journalized reports um, talked about the simplification of characters and then implementation of pinyin. And these days, we all, most of us at least, uh, keying Chinese characters using the index of the QWERTY keyboard. Um, that, is, that is evidence enough to show you that the script revolution is with us. Um, and that's why I always um, have this grievance to air um, against people who regret the simplification of Chinese characters, regret anything that happened with the Chinese script um, if we know anything about the actual history of how the Chinese script survived, you should know that these are all, in the words of script revolutionaries, necessary evil that has to happen in order to even preserve the basic, the, the bulk of um, an epistemology and a culture that was almost thrown out of the window. Um, so... What I can, what I want to highlight uh, for the ending, for the theoretical part, the third trajectory, is that, again, it is a surprise how the containment happened. It's a, a manifold surprise, actually. For one, phonocentrism reached its zenith um, when the CCP took over. Uh, the, the logic was very simple. They opposed the nationalists saying that they were not thorough enough. <laughs> They're definitely going to de deliver. That's the, the logic. Um, but while phonocentrism reached its height, it also reached its end point at the same time. Um, because never before was phonocentrism a state ideology and the socialist PRC made it so. And that's unheard of. Um, and the, the another surprise is that phonocentric regime um, alive and well, being enforced, even though alphabetic universalism was, was um, canceled out, was challenged. Um, this regime, it's just a surprise to me that it could be imploded from within. And a third surprise would be that it actually only took something quite simple and obvious to unravel that phonocentric regime. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the main protagonist of my chapter five, Tang Lan. Um, the father of modern Chinese paleography, a brilliant scholar uh, who reduced um, the traditional six principles of character formation um, from Shuowen. I'm going to uh, not translate the six 
principles， 呃呃，相信只是会议形成转注假借 all these six. He's saying that this is too much. Let's reduce it to three so that we understand the nature of Chinese writing better. The three should really be pictograph, ideograph, and ideophonograph. And according to him, he is the authority on paleography. <laughs> he says that.、Um, The percentage of Chinese ideophonograph by the time of、uh, the second millennia, already in Han Dynasty, the percentage went up to almost ninety percent. So to pretend that the Chinese script was voiceless,、uh, that it could not、uh, transcribe sound, is just mistaken. And it is remarkable how. Brilliant minds such as Lu Xun, as well as other well-trained linguists and philologists, would agree and pretended to go along with the simple、um, premise that the Chinese script is voiceless, hence needed to be remedied by phonocentrism. And Tang Lan is telling you that that is not the case.、Uh, ideophonographs in the Chinese tradition might be chaotic, but it shows that there is potential, and we can. Um, scientifically reform the phonological capacity innate to the millennia-old Chinese script, and this, I guess, this is not a Chinese case alone as well, because hieroglyphs was also understood to be voiceless. But surprise, surprise, a, a huge part of it is also is also、um, phonographic, right? So. One really wonders why old scripts will have to. Be disguised as voiceless in order for the one and only Roman Latin alphabet to shine. Right. So, the last surprise is、um, probably the biggest surprise. Also, the argument of the book and the title, the problematic and maybe controversial title.、Um, the Chinese critique of、uh, phonocentrism anticipated the post-structuralist critique in the sense of.、Uh, That Derrida used um, taking uh, logocentrism to task, taking Western ethnocentrism to task. What I discovered is that、uh, the conclusion, the containment of phonocentrism in the Chinese school revolution, was basically an anti-phonocentric critique from the point of view of writing,、um, or to be more specific, the science of writing, so grammatology, per definition. This is a critique that resembled but predated post-structuralism. I'm not saying that post-structuralism is the telos, but the fact that、uh, we need to、uh, come to terms with the limit of alphabetic writing, sometimes not from within, but also from an outside perspective,、uh, warrants this view of the Chinese、uh, writing system as an. Representative of the non-Roman Latin、um, system, looking into the Roman Latin、um, alphabet, especially when the one and only alphabet challenged the non-Roman Latin alphabet. It sounds like a tongue twister.、Um, so <laughs> here we have、um, a very neat case of dialectics. We start with phonocentric,、um, phonocentric regime, phonocentrism, but then we ended up with grammatology. If we walk the line that Tang Lan laid out for us to really understand the nature of the Chinese script, so as you can see, my somewhat Derridian title is actually pre-Derrida and is in fact、uh, a quite an honest and straightforward representation of 
what the book's main argument is about. So, yeah, that's where Chinese grammatology comes from. But um, I should hasten to add that there's so much more work to be done. Basically, where I end the book is only the beginning of going back into the uh, the nature of Chinese writing, and not to mention the long literary tradition of Wen. Um, so my uh, hypothesis at the very beginning of the three trajectory was that if a non-Roman Latin alphabet was to encounter the Roman Latin alphabet, there must be some kind of theoretical implication. If Derrida managed to wrest this huge tome of, of grammatology from uh, the Roman Latin, Latin um, alphabetic writing itself, then there must be a lot more that one can do with the encounter between a non-Roman Latin and Roman Latin alphabetic writing. Your answer sort of reminds me of two lines in the book, um, and I think it sort of captures it beautifully. Um, you have a line in chapter five, um, as though concluding the modern Chinese script revolution, Tang, this is Tang Lan, you're, you're the, one of the figures you follow in this chapter. Tang beckons, all grammatologists of the world unite. Let us read yes. chapter five. And then there is an epilogue um, to your book, and I don't think we're going to have time to go into it, but it has to do with, and I'll just tease it, it has to do with your meeting um, with, a gentleman who was 110 years old, um, someone who took credit for Pinyin's international recognition um, by the International Organization for Standardization in 1982. Um, but it ends with then something that he told you and your own sort of re reflection and conversation with the reader. And it's a line that has haunted me. There is much work to do for both language and writing. And this is how you sort of close the book. So with this, it's a beautiful epilogue. Um, I encourage all listeners to seek it out. But with this line, there is much work to do for both language and writing. You wrote, now that you are finished this book, what is the work that you are doing? Whether it is for language or for writing or for something else, what are, what are you working on now? Now that you're finished with this beautiful, very, very rich book that we only just sort of scratch the surface on. Thank you. You're a really generous. Um, I guess, yes, I, 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 maybe I have already taken the words of the last custodian of this group revolution, Zhou Yuguang's words, to heart. I have internalized it. There is much more work <laughs> to be done. And that's, that's how I feel uh, when I concluded um, this critique of Chinese grammatology, uh, critique that is grammatology. Um, what... I, I am still, uh, to confess completely honestly, um, I'm still in search of the next project that would be that would be as consuming as this one, as mind-boggling as this one. But in the meantime, I want to uh, set out and solve a puzzle, uh, which is also a coincidence uh, that I discovered while working on the book. So the three uh, main representative figures of the three legs of alphabetizing Chinese, Romanization, Latinization, and the socialist group reform. Uh, respectively, you have Zhao Yanren, Xu Qiubai, and then Zhou Yuguang. All these three gentlemen, brilliant gentlemen, came from the same alley called Qingguo Alley in Changzhou. And that's just too much of a coincidence. 
<laughs> I, I, I even asked this question to Zhou Youguang, bless his heart. Um, he didn't have an answer for it, of course. Um, uh, I don't have an answer for it, but I only realized this upon closing this book is that uh, Changzhou is very special. It's the headquarters of the old, uh, sorry, the, the new uh, tech school, Jingmen Jingxue School. Um, and there was this convergence at the turn of 20th century between the old and new tech school on the question of what to do with phonocentrism, basically, what to do with the relationship between speech and writing. And another convergence would be uh, the convergence of modern and pre-modern phonocentrism. And uh, that Changzhou puzzle is going to stay with me for a while. I want to work out the convergence of the modern and pre-modern phonocentrism and at the same time uh, explore the materi- materiality of writing that came with the whole project of phonocentrism. And I just want to know who else came from this alley? <laughs> who, who are the neighbors? Who, who, else, is, who else is around? <laughs> Me too. All for the next research project. I will report back when I know. All for the next project. Well, it sounds like, you know, you started off by saying that you weren't really sure you're still puzzling around. It sounds like those are some pretty big puzzles. Um, So best of luck with that. And when you find out who else came from this alley, like who was living next to these three big figures, who were they living on top of? Um, I'm dying to know. Me too. And thank you so much again for talking about this book and best of luck with the next puzzle. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.